Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, it is, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God is righteous. His judgments are just. But the problem of the righteousness of God is that we live in a fallen world. You look around the world, and while there are all kinds of indications of God's kindness, from the rain and the sunshine to the flowers and the fruit to the beauty and the birds and the wonder of the animals... Yet there are also indications of his anger and of his fury in the cyclone, in the earthquake, in the hailstorm, in the drought. Similarly, you can look around at humanity made in God's image and see the kindness of God in a mother's love or a father's care for their children or in the neighbourliness of people's generosity or in the organisations of Voluntary helpers like the SES or the bushfire brigades. But yet, we also see the wrath of God in the immorality of our city and in the shameless flaunting of decadence, in the corruption of power and politics and the lies of the media. That is, we live in a world where dishonesty and wickedness are normal and where evil exists and permeates in all our relationships. Here is the problem of the righteousness of God. This is supposed to be God's world, and yet God's world appears to be ruled by wickedness and evil. Where is the justice of God? Where can we find justice in this fallen world? Now, it's the opening cry of the prophet Habakkuk. So, we're coming back to Romans 1, 16 and 17, but... That verse 17 quotes Habakkuk, so turn with me to Habakkuk. Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralysed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk raises the first problem of God's righteousness for us, namely the delay in justice. He knows the righteousness of God, he knows the justice of God, but where is the justice when it is delayed? It was the 19th century British Prime Minister William Gladstone who coined the saying, justice delayed is justice denied. And Habakkuk, where is the justice? We've got the law, we've got the rules, we've got you, and iniquity reigns everywhere. And so Habakkuk complained to God and was told by God of the coming judgment that he was sending. He was told by God that the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, are coming. And when they come... They would destroy the wicked Israelites. That didn't please Habakkuk too much. For he knew the Chaldeans were even more sinful than the Israelites. So how could the righteous God, 
use wicked Chaldeans and Babylonians to punish the Israelites. I mean, the Israelites were corrupt, but these people are even more corrupt. So how can you use even more corrupt people to punish the people who are just corrupt? God replied that he had an appointed time for justice to come to them as well. And that God's righteous people must wait patiently for that time. But that brings the second problem of God's righteousness, namely the universality of sin. For it's not just Israel that sins, but also the Chaldeans, those who punish the Israelites and who themselves will be punished. For ultimately, God is the only judge because he is the only one who is free from the contamination of sin. All other judges, all other rulers are themselves guilty. When people look at the moral mess of the world and they ask, why does God not judge? Why hasn't God come and cleaned up the mess that the world is in? If there is a God, why cannot he come and punish? The answer is fairly simple. It's a four-step answer. One... God will do that one day. Two, when he does, he'll do it completely. Three, he will punish all sinners, every one of them. Four, that includes you. It's all very well to call out and ask for God to come and judge the world and clean up the mess, but make sure you're not going to be judged and cleaned up in the process. Here's the problem then of God's righteousness for me. And for you. I want the justice of God. I want evil and corruption of the world dealt with. I want the day when God's righteousness reigns supreme. And when we are no longer under lies and selfishness. But I am a sinner. I am part of the corruption. I am part of the unrighteous world. And if I call upon the justice of God, I'm calling for my own destruction. I'm wishing God's wrath and punishment to come upon me and I'm seeking my own condemnation. That's the problem with the righteousness of God. Who would like the subject of the righteousness of God when they're as unrighteous as me? I want it for you, but not for me. But the reason I want it for you is so that I can live in a world that's full of righteousness. But how can I live in a world full of righteousness if I'm alive in it? It's not full of righteousness. And so I don't really like the righteousness of God. But friends, that's why so many people call the gospel the good news. For it is great news. Not because it's the gospel. The word gospel just means news, means an announcement, means a declaration, as I shared with you last week. But God's gospel makes an announcement that is great news, the great news of salvation for those who hear it and believe it and are saved by it. The content of the gospel is simple and straightforward. The Messiah has come. The Son of God in power, the Christ, has come. The King of kings and Lord of lords has arrived. The ruler of the universe is seated in all power and authority. He is now ruling over all the nations. He's come to his supremacy by the resurrection from the dead. And so he is now the ruler of this age and the ruler of the age to come. He is now the ruler in the judgment of God and he is now the judge of all the earth. That's the announcement of the gospel we see in Romans chapter 1 verse 2. 
This is the gospel that Paul was preaching. This is the gospel he preached in Athens. For there he said in Acts chapter 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. There is the gospel news. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is to the right hand of God, where he sits in all power and authority to rule over all nations for all time and to judge the peoples of the world. For the resurrection is the judgment day. It's the beginning of the judgment and the first to rise from the dead is Jesus himself. And so judgment's on. The court's open. The judge is on the bench. Now all come, all come and hear the judgment. This is the great news that people want to call the good news. For the gospel is about the son of God risen from the dead and appointed to power. And that's the gospel itself, is the power of God. But it's the power of God, not just for judgment, but for salvation. Come back to our text for today. For I am not ashamed, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Without distinction, we are universally sinful. And without distinction, the gospel is for all sinners. For the Greeks and the barbarians, for the wise and the foolish, for the Jew and also for the Greek. It's for all peoples. There is nobody, but nobody, who is beyond the gospel's saving power. There is nobody so evil that they cannot be saved. And there is nobody so moral that they do not need saving. Some people think they're hopeless. Too evil, too wicked, too corrupted, too worthless. But they're mistaken. God's love reaches you. Doesn't matter how deep in despair you may be feeling fall before Christ now and plead for mercy for he will pardon he will forgive he will restore he will declare you right with him and some people think they just don't need this gospel they are moral they are upright and in your self-confidence friend You do need to fall before God and plead for mercy. They think they can look God in the eye and take what's coming to them. They're not going to demean themselves, belittle themselves by asking for forgiveness. But do not be like that, friends. For God is a consuming fire and nobody can stand in the presence of his righteous anger. The gospel is the message of the judge come to power. It's the message of the lordship of Jesus, the risen king in the resurrection age. But how can the news of the coming judge be good news to sinners? 
How can the announcement that the judge has arrived be the power of God for the salvation of the nations? Will not the gospel message be the condemnation of the nations and the condemnation of sinners like me? I mean, I am a guilty sinner and the great news is the court's now open and the judge is on the bench and he's calling for me. It doesn't sound like a good piece of news. That really sounds like the worst news I've heard all day. The explanation lies in verse 17 of Romans 1 about God's righteousness. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel, is shown, is demonstrated, is exhibited in the gospel. You may say, well, that's no comfort. I don't want God's righteousness revealed in the gospel. I want his mercy. I want his pardon revealed in the gospel. I want his kindness and forgiveness and a second chance. But the last thing I want is his righteousness and his justice. But dear friend, that means you haven't understood yet the great discovery of Martin Luther that turned the world upside down just 500 years ago. The great discovery that God's righteousness comes to us in the gospel message. That the righteousness of God is God's declaration that we are right with him. That we are righteous in his sight. To be declared to be right with the judge. Luther wrote, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistles of the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that that righteousness, whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered. Until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. And thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through the open doors into paradise. What a moment in human history when that monk so overwhelmed by his right conception of himself as a sinful man, full of wickedness and sinfulness, suddenly saw that it wasn't the righteous condemnation of God, but the declaration that he was right with God. It's a different thing altogether. He says the whole scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, Now it became inexpressibly sweet in great love. This passage in Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. It is in the gospel that God shows and reveals his righteous judgment on the world. Not the righteousness that demands that we are perfect, but the righteousness where he pays for our sins in the death of his son. The righteousness where he bestows and confers and gives and donates righteousness to us. It's not that God looks at me and says, Philip, you're righteous. It's that God gives me Christ's righteousness. 
and looks at me and sees my saviour in the place. This is the righteousness that is from faith and for faith. Some see this phrase to mean it's, it's from faith from first to last, and I don't mind that understanding of it, but it's not really what the text is saying. That is, the righteousness of God is all about faith. It's not about works. It's not about my efforts or morality. It's about patiently waiting for God's declaration of my righteousness. But I think the phrase more precisely is referring to from the faithfulness of God to our faith in him. His faithfulness and our faith. Or from the trustworthiness of God for our trust in him. But the word faith is so confused in modern English these days. And that's what faith is all about. It just means trust or rely or depend or believe. And the important thing about faith is always the object of your faith, what you have your faith in. If you have it in the right object, in a trustworthy object, then you trust the trustworthy. You rely upon the reliable, you depend upon the dependable, you believe in the believable, and so you'll be cared for, you'll be looked after. But if you put your faith in something that is faithless or unfaithful, you get let down very seriously. If you trust somebody who's untrustworthy, you'll get let down very seriously. But our faith is in the faithful God. Just because you would not like me to talk on this subject without using my basic standard illustration, let me give it to you again. You are all exercising your faith in your chair right now. But it's not your faith that keeps you off the floor, it's the chair. If you think it is your faith that keeps you off the floor, then try and sit on your faith without the chair. The important thing that holds you up is not your faith, but the chair. The important thing about your faith is what you have your faith in. It's not having a sense of faith. It's, what you, it's the object of your faith. If your faith is in God and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will save you. Not because you have faith, but because he saves. And so it's from faith for faith. It's from the faithfulness of Christ and God the Father for faith. God is faithful. He promised to bring righteousness, justice and judgment. And he's kept his promise. In that awful day when the Lord Jesus Christ bore the sins of the world upon his shoulders. And then three days later rose again, victorious over evil. There is the judgment of God. It started 2,000 years ago on a hill just outside of Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus Christ was faithful. He obeyed his father and was faithful to his father's commission even unto death. He never sinned and that is why our sins can be placed upon him. For we are now told of the Christ who has paid the price, risen from the dead and so calls upon us to trust him to trust his death on our behalf, to trust that he has soaked up all the wrath of God so that God can now say, you are right with me because my son has paid for you already. 
For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, who believes, who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jew and Greek alike. For God's righteousness is not the problem. God's righteousness is actually the solution. God's righteousness is not compromised by the fallen world's sinfulness. God's righteousness is his way of bringing the world to right. It's his way of bringing unrighteous people into his righteous kingdom. It's his way of bringing righteousness into the fallen world. It is by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that the righteousness of God floods this world. And so God does it by the gospel, by the message, by the announcement, by the declaration that Jesus Christ is king who has come to power, not by army, not by force, not by arms, not by economic power or technology or monopolies or anything like that. He's come to power by dying for the sins of the world and by rising from death again, bringing the final judgment of God on sin bearing the sins of the people and rising to judge not only for this life but in the life to come. And as the message of the gospel goes out, it has brought salvation for it declares the final judgment of God on sin. It says it's over. The warfare is over. The king has now come. He's made the peace settlement for us. And now is declared an amnesty. Lay down your arms, he calls. Lay down your arms and trust me and you will be pardoned. Amnesties are funny things, aren't they? They only happen occasionally. Libraries declare them. We don't care how you got our book, just bring it back. No questions asked, no penalties, no fines. The government did it a few years ago after the Port Arthur massacre, didn't it? Bring in whatever weapons you've got, bring them to the police station. We won't ask you why you've got a bazooka, how you came across that machine gun. We'll just say thank you very much and put it to one side. If you don't trust the police, if you don't trust your local librarian, it's very hard to turn up with the stolen, the illegal, and say, here it is. You have to trust their declaration that indeed it's an amnesty. No thing will be taken against you. You will, not be, you will not be accused. You will not be charged. Well, the great peace declaration of all time is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God says, I know you're sinful, but I have now paid the price for your sin, so come home. You're welcome. There's an amnesty. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, come on now. Now you see the highly moral person says, well, I don't need to. I've not done anything wrong. And the person who is overwhelmed by their sinfulness says, oh, no, it couldn't be true. I couldn't possibly be acceptable. But the gospel message of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is you need to come home. And doesn't matter how bad it is, you're welcome home. But you have to believe the declaration is true. And it's not just about the world, it's about me. Because notice in our verse 16 there, the little word, the big word, everyone. You're included in that. I'm included in that. 
God's peace was established with the sons of Adam. God's righteousness is established by Christ's death and resurrection. And God's righteousness is revealed to the sons of Adam, to all nations in the gospel message. And as one of the sons of Adam, I know that my righteousness is not found in my behaviour. But I am being told in the gospel that my righteousness can be found in Jesus' behaviour and death and resurrection. Not a righteousness of my own making, but the righteousness of God poured upon me, donated to me, given to me as a free gift. And what am I called upon to do? To live like the righteous in Habakkuk's day. To live by faith in God's faithfulness. To trust. To trust him. To trust his message. His word to me. Come home. You are welcome. Whoever you are. All I must do is trust that message. But when you have been fighting for years... It's sometimes so hard to trust the message. You want to keep rebelling. How do you come home? Well, there's a prayer. It acknowledges that I'm in rebellion against God and I need forgiveness. It thanks God for sending his son to die for me that I may be forgiven and rising again to give me new life. And it asks for what I need. Please forgive me. And please change me that I may live with Jesus as king. I'm going to close today by leading in this prayer. And I invite you to pray it along with me in the quietness of your own heart and mind to God. This moment's a very important moment for you. When you first come home. Let's pray. Dear God... I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. And I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.